Well, we are about halfway through our study of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And it's one of a handful of books that are categorized as wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And very nicely, uh, the compilers of the Old Testament stuck them together. Five books that we consider as wisdom literature. And I included this quote in the sermon outline in your bulletin from J.I. Packer, a well-known theologian uh, who passed away two years ago. And he wrote this about the purpose of these wisdom literature books. Here's what he writes. The Psalms teach us how to worship, Proverbs, how to behave, Job, how to suffer, Song of Solomon, how to love, and Ecclesiastes, how to live. And so we open up our Bibles this morning to Ecclesiastes to consider how we are to live Specifically, how we are to wisely live in this broken world for the few years that God has given to us to live. And so we're going to begin today in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10. So you can turn there if you're not already there or open your bulletin to find it. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. We're going to go through verse 14 of chapter 7. And we're thinking today specifically about what is best and how we know what is best. You'll hear that repeated phrase of better over and over in this passage. You will also hear the word advantage. What is advantageous for us? What is the best? What is good for us to live this life? So beginning Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. 
And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us in so many different ways, addressing all sorts of different topics. We thank you that you have given us this section of wisdom literature in the Bible to know well how to live wisely as your people. And today, O oh God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word and that you, O oh Lord, might use me to faithfully proclaim your word, to expound what is here and to apply it to our lives, that you would use me in spite of my sin and weakness to do so. And that you, O oh God, would open our hearts and minds, that we would not only hear what is being said, but the meaning as well, and that we would be cut to the heart, that you would work through your spirit in this word, and that you, O oh God, might grow us, shape us, that we might live wisely for you, trusting in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, getting into our passage, it starts by addressing a problem right away in the first couple verses. And the author tells us what it is. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? Now, these verses, as you sit down and trying to figure out what are they about, they seem to be about our common practice of disputing with God. That we have a tendency with God to act like backseat drivers. No, you should go this way, God, instead. I'd really prefer you turn this way. It's faster if we go that way, God. Or Monday morning quarterbacks. Should have thrown it there. What took too long there. Needed a timeout right there, God. Should have had it. That we have no shortage of gripes when it comes to how we see God running our world and our lives. But these verses seek to put us in our place, reminding us that it is God who created us, that he named us and everything else, that he knows what we are made of, that we are made of dust, and that he is far stronger and wiser than we are. So who are we to talk back to God? We don't get to veto his decisions. We don't get to edit things that he does. We cannot change anything that he has decided to do. Because any attempt to do that or tell him otherwise is vanity. A waste of our words. And to help prove his point, the author gives us two penetrating questions in verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Those questions boil down to, do any of us really know what is best? And do any of us know the future? The implied answer is no, we do not. But spoiler alert, God does. He knows. 
And since we don't know the answer to those questions, we need God's wisdom since he does know. And so the author of Ecclesiastes helps us by instructing us in two common ways that we go wrong. That when we get frustrated with our inability to make things better around us, we tend to respond in one of two ways. With intentional ignorance or agitated anger. That these are common responses when we see bad things around us in our lives and in the world. Intentional ignorance and agitated anger. And the author shows us the foolishness of these twin temptations. Showing us that we need to live wisely, trusting that it is God who truly knows what is best. And that he has perfectly planned what will happen in the future. And so we see the first temptation of intentional ignorance in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7. That when considering the difficulties of life around us, we can try to simply just ignore them. We can be overwhelmed by all the suffering around us. We can be stressed out by all the difficulties we face in life. And so we try to forget about them. And we try to spend our days in pleasure. Maybe you eat your feelings. Maybe you drown your sorrows in drinking. Maybe you turn off your brain and scroll through the internet on your phone or watch TV. But rather than concern ourselves with the problems around us, what we do is we intentionally ignore them to try to just better enjoy a life that's really hard. And the author of Ecclesiastes wants to tell us that is foolish. It is foolish to do that. He shows us a better way with a collection of Proverbs. Proverbs that show us the wisdom of soberly considering our mortal life. That we may not know what comes after us, but we can be sure that we are mortal and we will eventually die. That all of these Proverbs deal with the reality of our death, that life does not go on forever for us in this world. And it is foolish to live as if we get an infinite number of days on this earth. Life does not go on forever. And we need to consider our mortality so we can have a proper perspective in life. And this perspective is best summed up in verse 2. Verse 2 says this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind And the living will lay it to heart. Yes, I will freely acknowledge that you will likely have more fun going to a birthday party or a Penguins game or a concert downtown Pittsburgh. But you will get more out of a funeral. You will get more perspective by attending a funeral you will be reminded that your life is short. You will reconsider what you have been living for in this life. You will reflect on what you want people to say about you at your funeral. And all of that is way better than the fun of parties. Because part of this perspective is a kind of self-evaluation about this mortal life that we have. Listen to verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. See, when we ignore the problems in the world, we're not just ignoring problems out there. We're ignoring problems with us, too. 
And yes, I, I can admit, there's a lot of things in this world that we do not have the power to change. But one thing we can do to change the world is humbly listen to the loving rebuke of others who are trying to help us live better. Now, nobody enjoys being corrected. No one says, you know what I would like to have fun doing today? Having other people tell me how I'm living wrong. And yet, it is better for us to hear those words. Because if we heed them, we end up making one small part of this broken world a little less bad. Now, I... I don't have a lot of hard evidence to back up what is said in here other than saying it's the Bible. But I have noticed personally over the last 10 or so years a significant decrease in the number of funerals. Now, people have not stopped dying. There have just been fewer funeral services. Whether that's COVID restrictions, the rising cost of funeral expenses, whether it's the decline in religious belief. But I think what the Bible is telling us is we are losing something because of that. We are losing opportunities to gather together and have perspective about how short life is. And that it is a gift. And that we should be thankful for it and celebrate it and reflect on this one life that God has given to us. See, many in our world can try to ignore that truth and pass our days in pleasure, but the Bible calls us to adopt a sobering perspective that life is short and we only have one life to live and we should do so wisely according to the Lord. So that's one way we can be tempted to be frustrated by all that's broken in the world around us is we, we essentially ignore the problems around us. But some of us are tempted by another kind of foolish frustration. While some of us are prone to intentionally ignore problems, others of us are prone to a kind of agitated anger. That instead of feeling defeated and doing nothing, we feel a burning passion to fix everything right now. We are impatient that things cannot be fixed faster, that we pray every day, God, just fix earth It's a big old mess. Could today be the day that you just like, boom, and it's all better? We just want it fixed now. And we we can appreciate that passionate impulse there. But the author of Ecclesiastes also warns us against foolish impatience. He calls impatience in this way foolish. Now why? Look at verse 7. It says oppression drives the wise into madness. That we can go mad by being overly frustrated with oppression or by being willing to fight oppression by shady means like taking bribes. That our impatience to fix the problem can result in poor decisions. So he's saying patience is one of the primary issues in our frustration. And he follows that up in verse 8 preaching patience. Here's what he says in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, perhaps I can explain this a little better, this proverb in verse 8, better with football. That might be helpful. See, back in Super Bowl 51, the Atlanta Falcons were leading the New England Patriots by a score of 28 to 3 with just under 24 minutes left in the game. And if you were a fan of the Patriots, God forbid, 
you would have been very upset watching that game. In fact, you might have been tempted to turn the game off. I know, as a neutral observer, maybe someone who didn't like the Patriots, but as someone who didn't particularly care about the outcome of that game, I turned it off. They were losing 28-3. to But the Patriots came back to win that game. And now it is one of their fans' favorite games. Even though in the moment it seems so bad. And we think back to verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Our impatience at how badly things are going can often be an expression of arrogance that we know how things are going to turn out. Oh, no team ever comes back from that. Teams never do. I'm going to turn that game off. It's over already. There's an arrogance there. An arrogance of impatience that we see again in verse 10, where we are told not to ask, why were the former days better than these? We are prone occasionally to long for the good old days. But when we do that, we are effectively saying the way things are now are not going to turn out well. We are presuming to know the future. And we quickly become angry at circumstances because we confidently assume we know the ending. But we don't. We may be able to guess. We may have an idea of how it might end, but we don't know it. The truth is we don't know how things will turn out. We can point to many other situations and even do a statistical probability model of how things usually turn out, but we cannot be certain about any particular instant. You do not know the end of your particular trial that you are going through right now. You don't know what the future holds for your wayward child or your unsaved loved one. You don't know what God will do with the people of our nation. Yes, in the midst of suffering, things may not look great. But there are plenty of stories throughout history, and ones that don't include Tom Brady winning, where we see things twist and turn in such unexpected ways that if we had known that end from the beginning, okay, maybe. And so the Bible urges us to be patient. We don't know how things are going to turn out. But God does. And so though we are prone to be frustrated by problems in this world, the Bible is telling us, choose the wise path. Not the path of ignorance, not the path of impatience, but adopt a sober perspective of steady patience. And Ecclesiastes says this will be an advantage for us. We see this language in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 7. We see the word wisdom three times and the word advantage twice. Wisdom is compared to both an inheritance and money. In verse 11, we see it's compared to an inheritance. In Old Testament times, your inheritance was the land. It wasn't financial, it was property. That God gave His people the land. It was their inheritance. And no matter how bad things got, you would still have that land. That's what the year of Jubilee and other things in the Old Testament were about. That even if you had to sell yourself into slavery, eventually that land would come back to you and your family. And wisdom is an advantage like that. 
It is like a permanent possession that you keep and can never lose. And then he compares wisdom to money in verse 12. That just as money can help us withstand some problems, so wisdom helps preserve our life from many troubles. Yes, last week's passage talked about the dangers of money, but the author of Ecclesiastes is no fool. He's like, money can be helpful sometimes. It keeps us out of some trouble. Wisdom is of even greater advantage than having that rainy day fund. And so wisdom gives us the perspective to be patient when we are frustrated by the world around us. Wisdom helps us see that God is ultimately in control. Verses 13 through 14 try to put us on the right track. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. We are told that God has made some things crooked and that He has made the day of adversity. We cannot always comprehend how and why He does this. In fact, that almost seems to be part of the point. That God wants us to be at least somewhat in the dark, not knowing His specific short-term ends that He is working towards. Yet He tells us that He's still in control so that we can adopt the wise perspective of trusting Him. So that we can acknowledge the answer to those two questions in chapter 6, verse 12, are that God knows what is best for man. And God knows how all things will turn out. Because He is working all things for His good purposes. This is what Job, even in his horrific suffering, said. He told his wife that he must accept both the good and the evil from God. He is not saying that God does evil, but he is implying that God is ultimately responsible for permitting evil and suffering and adversity. And he says that out of trust. He says that not knowing what God is up to. He says that not knowing if he will ever be able to comprehend what God is up to in his own suffering. And we're like, how, how can we have such a wise perspective? How can we have this patient wisdom? And the way we get it is by looking to Christ who endured His wrongful arrest, His unjust trial, His unbearable suffering, His lonely death, trusting that God would bring about His good purposes and His good timing. That Jesus faced days of great adversity, but those days were replaced by days of great joy. That's what we see in the resurrection of the dead, showing that God turns even the worst suffering and adversity into joy and gladness. And anticipating this reversal, this victory, Jesus spoke the Beatitudes from our New Testament reading telling us that our hardships in life will turn out for good in the end because of His redemptive work on the cross, that the poor in spirit will have the kingdom of heaven, that those who mourn will be comforted, that those who are meek will inherit the earth, that those who are persecuted will be blessed. None of those things seem likely. We wouldn't expect these things to turn out for good. But in Christ, we are promised a good end. 
And so Christian, hear the wisdom that Jesus gives you to face the troubles around us. First, we we know that we are given a good end that is going to be better than any of the former days. We often look back at the years of in the past when there was less pain and suffering. We look back with nostalgia. And we long to go back. But our risen Lord Jesus has promised in the future to make all things new. He promises to do away with all sin, all sickness, all suffering, all death. That there will be no more. That God is working to the best ending possible. And it's that way, not that way. And if God is doing that for the world, then that means the crooked things about us and about the world will be made straight. I know that I am regularly frustrated by my sinfulness. And we can get frustrated by the frailty of our flesh that is but dust. But whatever our frustration, Jesus has the power to fix forever whatever is wrong with us. And He does that for the world too. And yes, we may not be able to fix our world, but Jesus will come back and make us and it completely new. And so then knowing that He's going to make all things straight, we can patiently endure both prosperity and adversity. As we move towards that last day, we trust that God uses both the good times and the bad to move towards that end. And if He used the death of Jesus to accomplish such good, then can we not trust Him that He can and does use our adversity to start making some of the crooked things straight now? And if that is so, then we can humbly pray to God instead of arrogantly disputing with Him about the wrongs in the world. We shouldn't just turn a blind eye to suffering, but we shouldn't fail to pray either. We can pray with the confidence that God knows what is going on, that He is already at work, that He is in the process of making crooked things straight. And yes, there will be much suffering before Jesus returns, but on that day, everything will be set right by the Lord of heaven and earth. See, it's only wisdom from God's Word that can help us to see things this way. And let us trust that the Lord is at work in our times of prosperity, in our times of adversity, And pray that He would work in us and through us until the day Jesus returns when all that is crooked is made straight and we can enjoy the fully good and perfect end that He has given to us. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that You would give us hearts that long for the end. Hearts that long for everything to be set right. Hearts that long for our bodies to no longer get sick and feel pain and die. Hearts that long to never sin again against You, O God, and against others. Hearts that will be fully satisfied in knowing and seeing Jesus our Lord. God, we pray that You would help us to have that trust. Help us to not ignore suffering. Help us to not grow impatient with Your work, but to instead pray that Jesus would come soon and continue His work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, Amen.